everybody as we conclude our study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, I probably bit off more than I can chew this week, but we're going to cover the last two chapters, chapters 15 and 16 of 1 Corinthians. I always say that chapter 15 is your reward for getting through chapter 14. And uh, since we started the study in 1 Corinthians, I have been looking forward to this chapter more than anything. Chapter 13 might be one of the most beautiful chapters in the book, but chapter 15 is um, exceptional. I call it the resurrection chapter because everything in this lengthy chapter is about the resurrection. So I had a choice as we approached this. I could either take several weeks to go through this one chapter But instead, I've decided uh, what we're going to do is like visiting the Grand Canyon. We're going to walk up to the rim, just behold the beauty of this place and point out some of its features. And then maybe in a future teaching, I'll take several weeks where we can take a hike down into the bottom and truly explore it. But I encourage you to do that after we go through this, this chapter. I encourage you to do that on your own. Chapter 16 we're only going to cover two verses of chapter 16. Chapter 16 is a lot of housekeeping things that Paul was doing as he uh, gave some personal messages and greetings to uh, individuals and, uh, at Corinth. But there are two verses there that I think should be the motto for every father and his sons. One other thing we're going to do differently, and I should have done this in previous teachings, I'm going to take you down to the, to the questions And uh, so if you're doing this with a discussion group, you'll have the questions in front of you ahead of time, and then you can pause the teaching at appropriate times and and then address the questions. So if you want to write these down, you may do so. And the first question is, what does Paul have to say about hell in chapter 15? Second, what is the last enemy and what happens after it is conquered? Number three, Paul says that Yeshua became a, quote, life-giving spirit, unquote, which has caused some people to say that there was no bodily resurrection. He just came spiritually alive, but not physically. But if that's the case, what were the attributes of his spiritual body? And you'll need to go to Luke 24, verses 36 to 40, to find your answer. And then the last question, Paul says that, quote, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, unquote. But what kind of people do inherit the kingdom of God? And you'll find the answers, and there's more than one answer, but you'll find those answers in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10. Okay, so with that, let's get right into our study. As I said, I call this the resurrection chapter. Everything about it is about the resurrection. And we could outline chapter 15 this way. The first part, I call it the gospel defined. Second, it's focal point. What is the focal point of the, of the gospel? It's the resurrection. Unfortunately, many people think there are other focal points of the gospel, but the main focal point of the gospel, even more than the death of Yeshua, is his resurrection. And we'll see more about that as we go. Third, the gospel's ultimate goal. In an email this week, I asked you, uh, I told you that in this chapter is the most far-reaching prophecy in the Bible. And it's found in this chapter. What is it? What's the ultimate goal of the gospel? And, uh, and then a little sub-comment uh, that Paul inserts is there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. And then fourth is the resurrection body. What kind of body do we have after we are resurrected from the dead? and then the coming victory. So, let's get right into it. We'll begin with verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I, number one, proclaimed to you, which you, number two, received, in which you, number three, stand, and by which you, number four, are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, number one, Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Two, 
he was buried. Three, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And four, he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that would be Yeshua's brother. He appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the assembly of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so we proclaim, and so you believed. So at the beginning, he reminds them of the power, the effect that the gospel, the good news, has had on them. He says, I proclaimed it to you, you received it, and you stand in it, and you are being saved by it if you hold fast to the word I proclaim to you. You know, if I could snap my fingers there is, and make a change in believers, it would be this one thing. I would be able to just change the way they think about what we are saved from. And oftentimes in conversations with my Christian friends, we'll, we'll get to talk and I'll pose a question. I'll say, what did Yeshua come to save us from? And the, you can always see him start to say, hell. But then they catch themselves and something inside their hearts tells them that's not the right answer. And it isn't the right answer. And then finally, after a pause and some conversation, they all do come up with the right answer. What Yeshua came to save us from was sin. Sin is what he came to save us from, not hell. And if I could change the minds of Christians all over the world and get this one thing set straight, it would be this. To make people less hell-minded and more sin-minded, that sin is the enemy. Sin is the cancer. It's the acid that eats away at our souls it is the thing that diminishes God's image in us. It is the thing that must change so we can begin to experience kingdom life, resurrection life, abundant life now, and will carry us into eternity. When you think that he just came to save us from hell, then salvation doesn't really begin until after I die. Salvation begins now. We're being rescued from this. And that is the thing that was in Paul's mind, the apostles' mind, Throughout the apostolic scriptures, sin is the thing we are being saved from, not some eternal underground torture chamber that God runs. If we could just get that straight. So I challenge you, every time you see the word salvation used in the apostolic scriptures, remind yourself it's sin we're being saved from. Sin is the thing that's destroying me, and God is rescuing me from sin. Now, also, when I get into conversations with uh, some of my Christian friends, even evangelical friends, I, I, I pick on them because I was raised evangelical. And the word evangelical in evangelism comes from the word evangel, which is a, an English form of the Greek word wangelion. And the wangelion is the word gospel or good news. In Hebrew, it's basora. Same thing, good news. And so I'll ask my friends, what does the Bible say the gospel is? And they, they're, they're tempted to say, well, if you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you go to heaven when you die. And then the flip side is you don't go to eternal fiery torment uh, instead when you die. The thing is, though that uh, is true, if you accept Yeshua as your Savior and and we need to talk about what it means to truly accept him. It's true, you'll, you'll go to heaven when you die. But there's more truth in that. And even the truth that that contains is not what the Bible calls the gospel. What is it that the Bible defines as the gospel? And here it is. Paul lays it out for us. And it's always a revelation to my Christian friends when I take them to this passage of 1 Corinthians 15, 
and say, here's the gospel. It's spelled out. Number one, Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Number two, he was buried. Number three, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And number four, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, the hundreds. And, and as Paul lays out, there are many witnesses of this. And so I've highlighted uh, the words died, buried, raised, appeared. Notice that there's no if-then statement in this, in this gospel. We tend to present the gospel, if you do this, then this good thing happens. That might be called the good deal, but it's not the good news. Good news is good news whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you respond to it or not. Good news is simply, this is what's happened. It's good news. And I have a picture here that was taken on VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, uh, when finally the Nazis surrendered and um, the, the Allies won the war in Europe. That was good news. It wasn't, now if you accept this, then we win the war. Or if you like this, then we won the war. No, we won the war, period. And you can see the response of the people. It's utter hilarity and joy, and, uh, and they're just thrilled. There's not a sad face in the picture because they've heard good news. And the good news of the gospel is this. Yeshua died, he was buried, he was resurrected on the third day, and we have plenty of witnesses to testify to that so we know it's true. That's the gospel. There's no, what are you going to do about it? It's good news. Unfortunately, 2,000 years removed from when the good news occurred, we don't see just how good that news is. So I hope as we go through this, we'll begin to appreciate how wonderful and how incredible this news truly is. So let's continue with verse 12. Count the ifs in this passage. Now, if Messiah is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in Corinth who did not believe in a resurrection. At least they don't believe in a resurrection of us. Maybe Yeshua rose from the dead, but we don't. And remember, the Sadducees did not believe there was a resurrection. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Messiah has been raised. So either there is a resurrection or there is no resurrection. People come back to life or they don't come back to life. And if Messiah has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Messiah, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Messiah has been raised. Now look at these next two verses, underline them, mark them. And if Messiah has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's empty, it's worthless. You are still in your sins. You get that? We always think it's Yeshua's death on the cross that saved us from our sins. But if there's no resurrection, what difference does it make? So your sins are forgiven, but when you die, that's it. There's no, there's no next thing that happens. You're just dead for eternity. So if he did not rise from the dead, there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Messiah have perished. We have to see that our deliverance from sin is tied intimately and closely to the resurrection of Messiah. N.T. Wright is a wonderful, wonderful book called The Day the Revolution Began. He says that, you know, when Yeshua was on the cross and he dies... None of the disciples, Mary and the, the other women there at the cross, they didn't say, oh, thank you, Lord, now our sins are forgiven. And then when he was buried, 
No one was really expecting him to rise from the dead. Nobody thought anything had changed. But on the third day when he rose from the dead, something clicked. Now they realized that the world would never, ever, ever be the same. You know, up to that point, people thought, you live your life, then you die. And that's it. You're done. Now, it's true that Judaism does generally believe that way at the end of time, there will be a resurrection. But that's way so far in the future that they hardly even think about it. And not all Jews even believe that. But basically, you live your life, you die. When you die, that's it. You know, it brings up the question, which almost seems silly. If you're really a believer, it almost seems a silly question. People ask, is there life after death? You know, as a believer and one who truly embraces this chapter, and every time I read it, it just becomes bigger in my heart and my mind. For me, the real question for me is, is there life before death? In other words, if I didn't know the Lord and I looked around the world and and had lived to the age I am now, I think, well, that's it. Uh, you know, it's like, take me on through the door. It's like, it's kind of unsatisfying. But knowing that life truly begins at the resurrection, life truly begins after I step through the door of death, now I invest my energies into life to come, the world to come. And that door of death isn't sealed very tightly because that future life, that resurrection life, seeps underneath and invades the life I have now. So even now, in this mortal body, even now, before the world to come has arrived, before the kingdom is here, even now I can begin to experience resurrection life. And life is abundant and full and good and full of hope, full of joy, It's a life without worry and anxiety. It's an amazing life because the life to come, that resurrection life, can begin to be experienced even now. Paul will talk about this more a little later in the chapter. But if there's no resurrection, basically death wins. It has won, it wins, and there's nothing more. Verse 20. But in fact, Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, this is very important for us to understand. Um, You know, Paul says that Yeshua, you know, he died according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he arose again according to the scriptures. But where are the scriptures that say that Yeshua, the Messiah, will come back to life? Well, it's one of those things that's kind of hinted at. Though it does say in Hosea uh, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. But the resurrection is more hinted at. It's more pictured than it is explicitly explained in the Tanakh. For example, when you you look in the scriptures, you'll read about... um, Let's see, I've written down several of these. Let me, oh, here we go. Sorry about that. Think of Pharaoh's cupbearer. There is the baker and the cupbearer, and they're in prison with Joseph. They both dream a dream the same night. They both share their dreams with Joseph, and Joseph interprets the dreams. He says the, cup, the, the baker, the one who brings the bread and brings it to Pharaoh, he is going to be put on a tree, hung on a tree. Sounds like crucifixion, doesn't it? But the cupbearer, the one who brings the cup, now notice the bread and the cup, the bread and the wine. The cupbearer, he will be restored to Pharaoh on the third day. Now, when you think about the body and blood of Yeshua, his body is broken. It was, it was tortured. It, it died on the cross. But the blood is put on the outside of the door on Passover to be presented to God. And Yeshua has made a way for us to before the Father by his own blood. The body dies on the cross, but the blood makes a way to the king. It's pictured by the cupbearer and the baker. Another one, how about Jonah and the whale? Jonah spent three days in the whale. On the third day, he came forth to new life. 
Um, when you read about Joshua taking the people across the Jordan, they spent three days preparing to cross the Jordan River. And on the third day, they cross. But here, Paul uses the example of the first fruits. Because we know that Yeshua was crucified on Passover. But on the third day after Passover is the day of first fruits, first fruits of the barley harvest. He arose from the dead as the first fruits of those who have died. Now, remember, when he rose from the dead, he didn't rise from the dead alone. In Matthew, we're told that a bunch of people were also resurrected, never to die again. A bunch of uh, righteous people who lived in the area, that area of Jerusalem. It says there in, in Matthew 27, verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the holy ones who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When a farmer would go out to gather the first fruits to bring to the temple, um, he would his eye would fall on the very first bundle of fruit, whether it's barley or later wheat, and then he would tie a cord around that bundle. Not the entire field, but just that bundle. And then it would be cut down and it would be brought and presented to the Lord as the first fruits. Remember this, when you read about first fruits, the first fruits is not the harvest. It's a promise that there will be a great harvest. So Yeshua and these people who are resurrected at the time he was, they're the bundle. And God says, this is the first fruits. There's going to be a great harvest. They're all going to come back to life. So the scriptures do, do uh, give plenty of support to the, the fact of the resurrection. And then verse 22, I love this verse. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah shall all be made alive. Remember the good news of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. It was good news for everybody, whether you liked it or not, whether you knew it or not. It didn't change the fact that the war was over. And remember, we're not saved by what we think. We're saved by what Yeshua did. And if we can grasp that and, and really embrace the good news of what he's done, we will find ourselves victorious over the sin in our lives and a growing victory, a daily overcoming of sin in our lives. So what Yeshua did affects all. In Adam, everybody dies. Messiah, everybody is made alive. If you want to read more about this, Paul goes into much more detail back in Romans chapter 5. Let me read you just a couple of verses from Romans 5. We'll look at verse 12 and verses 18 and 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience all were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Yeshua, all will be made righteous. Now, in your translations, it may say the many were made sinners and the many will be made righteous. But this is a Hebrew idiom. We find it in the Tanakh and Paul uses it here. Because sometimes when the scriptures say all, it's not referring to all, but to most. Uh, for example, it says all Israel went out to be baptized by John the Immerser. Really, every single individual, it's using all in a figurative way to, and, and as a hyperbole to say masses of people went out to be immersed by John. But whenever it says the many, then it's saying all without exclusion all without any exceptions. So it's a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean many. It means the many. Everybody. No one left out. It's a wonderful verse. But let's move on. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Okay, so in Adam all die. In Messiah all will be made alive. But it's going to happen in a particular order. But each in his own order. Messiah, the first fruits. That's occurred already. Then at his coming, 
those who belong to Messiah. That's the second step. Third step, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, and after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the last thing. What is death? Separation from God. There will be no separation from God. God will be all in all. And then uh, it says, verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that is a quote from Psalm 8, verse 6. Um, If you want to, pause the teaching here in a moment and go back to Psalm 8 and read it through. You're going to think, well, wait a minute. This psalm's referring to man. Because it says there that when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is Adam? What is man that you are merciful, that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. For you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. It's talking about man there. Specifically, it's talking about Adam. But what Paul's doing here is saying, yeah, it's talking about Adam. But Adam lost that dominion when he sinned. But God has sent another Adam. Later in the chapter, he'll refer to Yeshua as the last Adam. And what Adam, the original Adam, lost through sin, the new Adam, the last Adam, Yeshua, regains and restores. The image of God that we are to bear that was lost when Adam sinned, that image is restored through Yeshua. So when it's talking about the first Adam here in Psalm 8, it all applies to the last Adam as well. It has a happy ending. And so God has placed all things under Adam's feet, the last Adam, who is Yeshua. Remember, the reason Yeshua came to live, he came to earth to live and to die and rise again, is so that he can completely reverse all the damage done by Adam. And just as Adam's sin has affected every human being, the obedience of Messiah, the last Adam, will affect every human being. For as in Adam all die. Even so, to the same degree, in Messiah, all will be made alive. Everybody hurt by Adam will be healed and restored by Yeshua. What a wonderful good news this is. And then at, at the middle of verse 27, let's start 27 again. For God has put all things under, in subjection under his feet. Now what you need to do is put a parenthesis here. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In parentheses, close the parentheses. He's put this little parenthetical statement in there because Paul wants to make it very clear that when it says that God has put all things under Messiah's feet, there's one exception to that. And that's the Father himself. The Father is not put under Messiah's feet. Everything else is. And then here it is. Here's the most far-reaching prophecy I know of in the Bible. I don't know how you can go further than this. It says, verse 28, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You know, we think of Yeshua reigning forever and ever, and a few times in Revelation it does say he reigns forever and ever. But here Paul says he reigns until all things are put in subjection under him, death, the last enemy, is destroyed, then Messiah turns the kingdom over the Father and puts everything in subjection to the Father, and the Father rules. So how can you reconcile these? Well, remember, wherever you see the phrase forever and ever, it literally means unto the age of the ages. Until the age of the ages. Yeshua will rule until the age of the ages. But a day comes 
when death is finally destroyed, there's no separation from God. The kingdom is all put together, and Yeshua says, Father, it's all yours, and we all come under subjection to you. That's an amazing, amazing prophecy. I tell you what, God's story for this world has a very happy ending. This is why you just can't lose by throwing in your lot with such a God and with such a Savior. What an incredible and amazing Savior we have. Let's continue now with uh, verse 29. <laughs> Probably the worst translated verse in the Bible. Of course, it's got a lot of competition, but here's what it says. Uh, your translation will say something like this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And there are some expressions of Christianity, and I think especially Mormonism, which is a cult, but the Mormons have made quite an industry out of um, baptizing living people on behalf of dead people. Uh, because in their theology, unless you are baptized into the Mormon church, you go to hell for eternity. So when they can come across a record of somebody who died maybe hundreds or thousands of years ago, oh, nobody's been baptized on their behalf, then they'll go and get baptized for them. It's not unusual for one Mormon to be baptized hundreds and hundreds of times on behalf of some dead person who was not baptized. All based on a bad translation. It's bad punctuation is really what it is. Correct your translation so it reads like this. Otherwise, what are they doing who are baptizing? Question mark. You know, if there's no resurrection, what are we baptizing for? Answer, it's for the sake of the dead if the dead are not raised. In other words, we're just <laughs> baptizing corpses if there's no resurrection. Because in Jewish thought and riling up in Christian thought, when you are immersed, it's a picture of dying to the past. And when you come out of the water, it's like being born again. The term born again is a Jewish term. It's not one that was originated in, in the Gospels. It was one borrowed from Judaism. And they always see immersion as dying to the past and then coming out like a newborn baby into a new future. But if there's no resurrection, what are you picturing? You're just baptizing corpses. You're just a person who's going to die and stay dead. But immersion is an expression of your hope and faith that a resurrection's coming and you're going to live again. So, otherwise, what are they doing who are baptizing? It's for the sake of the dead if the dead are not raised. The verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, all the persecution I undergo is because of my belief in the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, why am I going through all this? Why am I suffering? This is not worth it. And when he says, uh, I say this to your shame, it says, for some have no knowledge of God. That, that Greek word for no knowledge is ag agnosia. That's where we get our word agnostic. And he's saying, some of you so-called believers in Corinth, you may have a lot of theology. You may have a lot of Bible facts. You may know the gospel, but you don't know God. And I say this to your shame. I've met many believers, many who call themselves Christians. There are some even who have come through the doors of Beth Takun. They have lots of theology. They have uh, a lot of knowledge about the Bible. They have a, a lot of knowledge about the things God has done, Bible prophecy and all kinds of things, but they don't know God. It's like they've read every book there is on Abraham Lincoln, but they've never met Abraham Lincoln. 
So knowing about God and knowing God are two different things. And there's no excuse for us to not know God. And if this is speaking to your heart right now, then for you, this is the end of the lesson. This is the place you need to get by yourself, the place that's quiet. Get on your knees, get on your face and cry out to God. Say, God, I want to know you. And then life will change. If you haven't done that, then there's no more important thing you could possibly do right now at this moment than that. Well, let's continue. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, he says, you foolish person. What he's saying is, look around you. I mean, isn't it obvious the answer to these questions? He's saying, you act like resurrection is some very strange, weird thing. He says, look around you. You see resurrection everywhere in nature, everywhere you look. And that's why he says you're foolish, because you're not, you're not looking. You're not looking at the creation that our creator made, the same creator who gave us Messiah and provides the gospel of salvation for us. He's built into creation the pictures of resurrection. And so in verse 37, it says, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. In my illustration, it's an acorn. There's the acorn down there in the lower left-hand corner. And when you plant the acorn, it grows into an oak tree. So the thing Paul's trying to stress is, does the acorn look like the tree? No. They don't resemble each other at all. Nobody who, who hadn't seen this process and understand what's going on could look at an acorn and possibly guess that it becomes this, this amazing, amazing plant. Paul's saying this is the same case with burial and resurrection. It says, but God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind of for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. He's working his way from top to bottom. Humans, animals, birds, fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon. Another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So we're saying there's all different levels of things in the creation. So it is, verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What you sow in the ground we call a corpse. You plant the corpse in the ground. You wait. And then at the right season, what was a corpse becomes a true human being. And he talked earlier about how the seed falls into the ground and dies. What does death mean? Separation. If you've ever watched a seed and you, you watch a science show, a seed, it could be something, whether it's a, a, something like a coconut or an acorn or whatever it is, it splits and divides. That's death. And at that moment, the life begins. So it is with the resurrection of the body. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And make a list of these. There's about four or five of these. Perishable becomes imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a soulish body. That's very important. If yours says natural body, fix it. It's a soulish body. It is raised a spiritual body. Why does he call it a soulish body? Because a normal human being who doesn't know the gospel, doesn't know God, he lives out of the flesh and he lives out of the soul. And earlier, right at the beginning of Corinthians, Paul talks about the babies in Messiah who are fleshly. They're driven by the flesh. But then he goes on, is even more critical of the soulish. 
And most believers, in fact, all believers go through this stage. I don't know of any exceptions. Unfortunately, I think most believers remain at this stage. Some of you listening to this are at this stage still after decades, possibly, of calling yourself a Christian. You're still soulish. You make your decisions out of your own mind, out of your own emotions, and out of your own will. A disciple of a Messiah doesn't do what he wants to do. He does what his master wants done. He can have feelings, but he says, not my will, but yours be done. What do you want? I feel afraid, but Father, you say, don't be afraid, so I'll do what you tell me to do. If you're a disciple of Messiah, you are free from being dominated by your own personality. And you can be free to follow him in courage and in joy and in faith that what he's telling you to do is right. And I promise you, if you do this, it will be tested. God always tests faith. He kicks the tires to make sure it's genuine faith. But there's no freedom for someone who's not going to walk in this kind of faith and truly be a disciple of Messiah. I challenge you. If you're a soulish person who lives out of his emotions, his opinions, and out of his own human reasoning, I'm telling you, there's another level of how to live this life. Tap into that. Humble yourself, fear God, and become wise and trust him. Follow him, not your ways, but his. And the fruit of his ways will always be borne out. You'll never regret it. So we pick it up in 45. Now remember, it, it has raised a spiritual body. That does not mean it's, it's somehow um, ethereal and it's not solid. Spiritual bodies are very solid, very real. And again, I challenge you to go back to Luke 24, verses 36 to 40. Yeshua, after his resurrection, appears to his disciples. I want you to look what he says about his physical body there. It's very enlightening. Verse 45, thus it is written, quote, The first man, Adam, became a living being, a nefesh chaya, a living soul, unquote. The last Adam, this is Messiah, became a life-giving spirit. Adam was made a living soul, Yeshua become a living something deeper, a living spirit. He still had a body. In fact, his body was capable of much more than it was before. And because he became a life-giving spirit, his body was also a spiritual body. It still had physicality, but didn't have any of the limitations of a physical body. Again, read Luke 24. Something's worth discussing and really digging into. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Because when that, that seed, when that body is, rises from the dead, it's now animated from something much deeper, something much more spiritual, something that is much more connected to the heavenly than to the earthly. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The man of dust is Adam. The man of heaven is Yeshua. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a secret. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes Hosea thirteen fourteen. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where's your victory? O oh, death, where's your sting? Unquote. The sting of death is sin. 
and the power of sin is the Torah. Now, there's something you might want to think about for a while. How is the Torah that give power to sin? Simply put, it's this. It is the Torah that makes sin illegal. Until the Torah came in, there was no such thing as sin. But when a law is made, then a behavior becomes illegal. And because there's this thing in us, this sin in us, that wants to rebel against God, we have to have a rule that comes from God for us to disobey. There has to be some order given by God for us to rebel against. But if God doesn't give any rules, if he doesn't give any laws, there's nothing for sin to do to express itself. So God gives us his righteous Torah, his standard of righteousness of what the redeemed life is supposed to look like. Now sin rises up and says, that is what I'm going to rebel against. If God says it, I'm going to do the opposite. If God desires it, then I'm going to decide I don't want it. If God says no to something, I'm going to say yes to it. So the power of sin is the Torah, the righteous, godly, holy Torah. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our master, Yeshua the Messiah. He gives us victory. Over what? Over sin. Because it's... um, Well, let's read the next part. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the master, knowing that in the master your labor is not in vain. This is the thing. We have mortal bodies. But we have his spirit living in us. We have the spirit of the resurrected Lord and master, Yeshua, living in us. So though we have these bodies of dust, we have a sampling of the resurrection life living in a mortal body. It's like we have grown up and outgrown our clothes. And so as our bodies age, become more fragile, it's because the life within us is growing. It's becoming stronger. It's becoming more powerful, more connected to God, more mature, more of one mind with our Father, more obedient to our Savior, and we're outgrowing these bodies. We're just outgrowing them. And we're to the place where, you know what, I need something better than this, and this body dies. And it's not something to be feared whatsoever because it's the next stage in us becoming the men and the women, the sons and daughters of the Father that he wants us to be. There should be no fear of death for us, none whatsoever. Any more than you, you fear when you plant a seed into the ground. You think, well, I could eat that seed. I could enjoy that seed. I could enjoy that grain. But I'm going to invest it because it's going to bring forth something great, something wonderful. The best is yet to come. Messiah serves the best wine last. What a God we have. That's chapter 15. And in the email I ask you, what two verses, what two verses in chapter 16 uh, do you think I'm going to emphasize as being the key, as being the most important two verses? And so I'm curious to know what you picked. But uh, I'm tempted to say, but here's the right answer. Well, this is my answer. These are the two I picked. And as at Beth de Kuhn, we... uh, we focus more and more and have more programs geared to help fathers raise godly, strong men. Uh, I challenge all the fathers to memorize these two verses and have your sons memorize them as well. We had uh, two baby dedications last Shabbat. Uh, my nephew, uh, Daniel, and um, his brother-in-law, my niece's husband, Michael, dedicated their two sons, which are both a year old. And I asked him to share some remarks. I'll forget what Daniel said. He, he didn't know I was going to ask him. He stepped to the mic, and he was thoughtful for a moment. And he said something to this effect. He says, um, my prayer for my sons is not so much that God would make them safe, but that God would make them strong. 
God bless him for saying that. And may God make our sons strong. And we can be too overly protective of our children physically and not protective enough of them spiritually. And so we need to pray for strong sons and strong daughters. So these are the two verses I challenge you to memorize from chapter 16. I call this Paul's exclamation point. And what a wonderful way to end this letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. And I've numbered the five things. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, not little boys, not children, but as men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. What great advice. I wish I'd memorized that when I was young. Because I can think of many times in my life when, if these two verses had been in the forefront of my mind, it might have spared me some heartache and spared others heartache as well. So I challenge you again. Memorize these two verses. Teach them to your kids. Review them. And uh, I think these five things will really help your children to be strong, whether they're boys or girls. So, next week, we'll be starting 2 Corinthians. It's a shorter book. It's about uh, two-thirds as long as 1 Corinthians. And the tone of 2 Corinthians is completely different from 1 Corinthians. So apparently, Paul's letter here, 1 Corinthians, had its desired effect at the assembly at Corinth because they apparently really grew up. And when you read 2 Corinthians, he's writing it to a very mature community of believers. So I look forward to getting into 2 Corinthians. And then I have a surprise for you when we finish 2 Corinthians. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you. Thank you so much for the resurrection. What an incredible idea. And Lord, I can't help but think that you allowed death to enter the world simply so we could know what resurrection is. Father, your ways are, be, are, are beyond finding out. Your ways are beyond our ways. and Your thoughts so much higher than ours. Well, Lord, it seems like every day and every year we get a little bit deeper glimpse into your heart, to your wisdom, your brilliance. And I thank you for that. Help us to be the people you want us to be. Fearless people have no fear of death whatsoever. Help us to be the people who already embrace death and the fact that we have been crucified with the Messiah so we can walk now in newness of life. For we are people who have this treasure in these vessels of clay. So Lord, I pray that we will focus on the treasure and invest in the world to come live our lives here as disciples and as martyrs for the world to come. Be willing to suffer now for the joy that's set before us so that we can live a life like Yeshua's, die a death like his of fearlessness, and that we can rise to new life as his. So again, Make us the people you want us to be, Father, and I ask it in the name of the Son, Yeshua, our, our friend and our Messiah. Amen.